Number 7. Managing for the Master. First Quarter, 2023. John Pauline. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen. We're starting Lesson 7 onto the least of these, and we're on the quarter managing for the Master till he comes. Dr. John Pauline is our moderator. Alan is going to offer the opening prayer. Heavenly Father, thank you for being a God who says, Let us reason together. Please have your spirit guide our reasoning and our discussions today. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. We're in the seventh of a series on stewardship called Managing for the Master. And it seems to me that the key theme of this particular lesson is how does stewardship relate to the needs of other people? In other words, when other people's needs come to your attention, in what way is that connected with stewardship? And how would the doctrine of stewardship guide our thinking in how we respond to those kinds of things? Turning to the first part, Of the handout and the questions and notes. In this week's lesson, we explore the role of stewardship in our ministry to the least of these, a term that Jesus uses related to those who are poor, who are in prison, who are hungry, etc. And in biblical terms, the least of these is often described as strangers, the fatherless, and the widows. Now, how would you define? Each of these three groups, and what do they all have in common? And I'm asking the question more in the biblical context than necessarily today. These three categories foreigners, fatherless, widows what do they all have in common? What's the common denominator in why they would be listed as the least of these? All right, Rita? In the context of biblical times, they don't have any means of sustainment, the breadwinner. They're not in a position. Of having a breadwinner. If you're a stranger, if you're living in a foreign land, you don't have any right to anything and probably wouldn't be able to fend for yourself. And similarly for fatherless and widows, they would be relying on the senior male in the family to provide for them.、Mm-hmm. Okay, yeah, I think all three of these common denominators is the lack of a male with social standing in the culture. If you're a foreigner, You may be wealthy, you may be powerful, whatever. But when you show up in a local Israelite community without connection with some male in that community, you're nobody. And if your children growing up without a father or a widow has lost their husband, you have no connection with a male of social standing in that particular culture. That was probably the worst thing. That could happen to someone is not being connected to a male with power and standing in the community. Sean? Were they not also measured or defined, these groups, these three, measured or defined within the context of God's chosen people, the Hebrews, which would then slant the reader of these narratives to understand? Jesus's larger intent at teaching these are individuals within the context of a spiritual nation and not outside of that spiritual nation. So, the strangers, then, I think in today's terms, we might think of them as refugees, although it could be an entrepreneur 
you know, a businessman from Babylon who, who wants to set up some connections in Israel might show up, et cetera. But the stranger is somebody who has no local standing and would have to earn that in some way. The fatherless would be perhaps there's war, accidents, illness, or sometimes abandonment that would cause a person to be fatherless. And then widows, of course, have lost a husband to death. So if a widow has an adult son, then she's covered. And that brings poignancy to one story in Jesus' life, the widow of Nain, where he comes upon the situation and realizes that the woman not only lost her son, she's a widow, and her son was her only connection to social standing. So the loss of this son was doubly tragic in that context. So Jesus now comes into the scene. The last lesson, we talked a lot about the Old Testament and various characters there. But in this lesson, Jesus comes into central focus. And we'll start with Luke chapter 4 in number 2 of the handout. And in Luke chapter 4, let's read 16 to 21. When he came to Nazareth, where he had been brought up, he went to the synagogue on the Sabbath day, as was his custom. He stood up to read, and the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was given to him. He unrolled the scroll and found the place where it was written, The Spirit of the Lord is upon me, because he has anointed me to bring good news to the poor. He has sent me to proclaim release to the captives and recovery of sight to the blind, to let the oppressed go free, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. And he rolled up the scroll gave it back to the attendant, and sat down. The eyes of all in the synagogue were fixed on him. Then he began to say to them, Today, this scripture has been fulfilled in your hearing. All right. The, I think, most important feature here is this is Jesus' mission statement, the way it's placed in the Gospel of Luke. Each of the Gospel writers at some point gives some sense of Jesus' mission And the interesting piece is that it's different. Jesus' mission in Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John is different. But this is the introduction to Jesus' ministry, and it's sort of his mission statement. And let's go back to it and says he went to Nazareth where he had been brought up. So you have the sense that Jesus has not been there in a while. And so he shows up one day, and he had grown up there and spent a number of years of his adulthood already. He was 30 years old at the time. And it says here that he went into the synagogue, as was his custom, on the Sabbath day, and he stood up to read. And the scroll of the prophet Isaiah was handed to him. Unrolling it, he found the place where it was written, etc. Just a question to ponder. Did Jesus choose this text? Or was the text given to him? But I think it kind of makes a difference a little bit here. Sean? Yes, John. Just prior to addressing that question, let me then ask, because I am not completely familiar with the protocol of synagogue custom, if this man, Jesus, had been out of his home for some time and now he was just returning to Nazareth, how is it or why is it that he stood up to read? What was the election? Who elected? What was the process by electing readers? Well, in the synagogue, you might have several people. You would have the rabbi who would generally do the preaching. You might have a cantor who leads the singing. And then you have the ruler of the synagogue who's sort of the administrator. 
He's the one who runs the place, and the rabbis maybe can come and go, and the cantors can come and go, but the ruler of the synagogue kind of stays on. And I suspect that that would be the person who is in charge of the readings and uh, perhaps ran into Jesus a day or two before, says, oh, you're back here. Says, uh, How are things? And, and talk a little bit, and uh, would you help us with the reading? Uh, now, here's where the challenge comes in, because we know how the synagogue operated three or four hundred years later. And in the third or fourth century, synagogue services had two readings, the law and the prophets. So you'd have one reading from Moses, from Genesis through Deuteronomy. You'd have another reading from Isaiah through Malachi. And the two would be coordinated in a certain way. And we know from that lectionary, as they call it, that, for example, on the day of Pentecost, the reading was Exodus 19. In Moses, it was Ezekiel 1 in the prophets. Now, the fascinating thing is in Revelation chapter 4, you have references to the sanctuary and you have allusions to Exodus 19 and Ezekiel 1. So I have theorized in publication that the day of Pentecost is what John has in mind in telling the story, that the seven churches of Revelation are related to the Passover. But then this next section of Revelation is related to the Feast of Tabernacles, and later on you get the Day of Atonement and so on. So that's a little bit of a side story. But in Babylon, they had a one-year cycle. They would have readings set for each Sabbath of the year, you know, one through 52, or maybe occasionally 53. In Palestine, though, in Canaan, they had a three-year cycle in the third and fourth centuries. And so they would have readings through the scriptures that would rotate every three years. We're just not sure if that later practice was there in the first century. There are scholars who argue that it is and that we can go with the lectionary of Canaan three centuries later and learn something from that. Others say, no, it's not likely that they were that formal and fixed. So the point to make here is that either Jesus chose the text or he chose the day. He chose when he came back home. And if he knew that Isaiah 61 was the reading for that day, then he says, this is the perfect time to announce my mission. So either way, Jesus either chose the text or chose the day, but we're not sure which of those it is. The wording here that unrolling it, he found the place where it is written kind of suggests that he was choosing on his own, but it's not absolutely certain that I'm aware. Julie. I just have a question. Do we have any evidence? It sounds like in this passage that they had the entire book of Isaiah there. It seems like I remember from the Qumran scrolls, the Isaiah was in portions, and I'm wondering if this was just a portion of Isaiah or the whole thing, or if we have any way to know what the likelihood of that was. And the second thing is that we think about how we find things in our Bible, and Jesus must have really had a lot of time with the scriptures to be able to take the whole book of Isaiah in a scroll and find the right place, obviously without chapters or verses. It's something I had never thought of before. Mm-hmm. That's right. Chapters and verses seem to be a later invention. Yeah, from the Dead Sea Scrolls, the Isaiah scroll is quite considerable, and it is in two pieces, as I remember, if I remember correctly. So what made a Bible possible was a shift from scrolls to codices. What we call a book is a codex. It's where you have pages stacked and glued or sewn together at the edges, and that's what we call a book. But that was actually invented sometime around the book of Revelation. So in the time of Jesus, 
Now, as far as we know, Christians were the first ones to use the Codex, probably because they wanted to be able to carry all four Gospels or all the writings of Paul together. With a scroll, that would be much more difficult to do. It would be much more bulky. So Jesus was using a scroll here and needing to unroll it, etc. I suspect that Isaiah 61 was the text for the day. So he'd get the right half of Isaiah, and he just needed to scroll through and find the right page and the right text. And that shows considerable reading ability. Where did he learn to read since he didn't go to synagogue school? Apparently, Mary was one of those rare women that did know how to read. And so he would have learned that growing up. Larry? When you look at uh, various versions and look at both Isaiah and the Luke writing, Some of them use the word freedom or to set free, but virtually all of them at some point in either Isaiah or Luke use the word liberty. And I know we've talked prior sessions, the difference between the word liberty and the word freedom and what they imply in terms of its viewpoint. What is the difference in terms of Christ coming to set people free or to grant them liberty? Because I think those two are very key takeaway points, in my opinion. Thank you. Well, thank you for raising that point. I just scrolled over to a computer concordance and looking at some eight major translations, the ESV says liberty to the captives. The King James says deliverance to the captives. The New American Standard says release to the captives. And the New English translation also says release. And then the New International Version says freedom for the prisoners. New King James says liberty to the captives. And then New Revised Standard says release to the captives. And the Revised Standard also release to the captives. So it seems to me that that may be a helpful distinction, Larry, uh, at least in English, but the translators seem to see the Greek word as, as encompassing all of those options. Livius? Jesus said, concerning that day or the hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but the Father. He also said things like, my time has not yet come. So to me, I think it makes God's character look better for him to just walk in and this happens to be the text that's there you know he often took advantages of situations like that and just use them so that's what i'm thinking (laughs) yeah okay very interesting point bob i'm wondering you're raising the question about the jewish scrolls and things hebrew scrolls do they now in this point in time have chapters and verses in the what we would call the old testament which those who were jewish obviously use or do they still go with out chapters and verses i'm just curious how they organize theirs if anybody knows i don't know yeah to the best of my knowledge the answer is no my understanding is it was someone in the sixth century a.d who divided the bible into chapters and in the 12th century divided into verses. So those are relatively late developments, and people had to understand the word pretty good to actually find stuff that they were looking for. And if you think the time of scrolls, that you didn't have a Bible, but you'd have to chase down this big pile of manuscripts, putting things to heart really made a difference. Commenting on what Larry raised a minute ago, I was thinking about what he said, and Michael may have another thought on this, but it seems to me that back in that day, 
the people who had the most freedom of movement and things were the Roman citizens like Paul, because he certainly used that later when he was being beaten and put in prison. And I think a lot of the subjects of the Roman Empire, because that's the context, at least in the New Testament, that things were written, a lot of people probably didn't feel that free. But I think from our standpoint, theologically, it'd be freedom from Satan's control in his world. So I think there's probably more than one level one could look at that. Yeah, and I'm going to complicate things further in a little bit, but I'll let Michael do his work first. I'll make this response as far as liberty and, and freedom in that in the late 18th century, the term liberty was of most concern and was used ex- in exchange for what we would call freedom. As, as Thomas Jefferson's Declaration of Independence says, life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. Liberty was freedom to do as you wanted, freedom to choose. But my comment, though, is about Jesus reading this scroll from Isaiah and then sitting down and then making this comment that, okay, this reading has been fulfilled among you today. Well, that, as we know from the scripture, they weren't very pleased with his comment, but it was undoubtedly a startling statement because this was somebody who grew up in this area. They knew him as a young child. And, you know, isn't this the son of, you know, so and so, that kind of stuff. And he now is telling me that this is who Isaiah was writing about, him? We don't believe him. Let's mm-hmm. throw him out of town. <laughs> That's right. A very, very striking statement that the average reader wouldn't be saying that. Yeah. Alyssa? I was wondering what he meant when he said to release the oppressed. And if we try to think, what was he talking about that outside of prisons and people being blind? What was he going to release? What was the oppressed? What was oppressing them? Well, it's interesting that in many translations, the word liberty is used twice in this verse. And the first one is liberty to the captives. That would be prisoners, military or political or criminal. And then the other one is liberty to the oppressed, which would be delivering people from a situation where there is an oppressor. So removing the oppression, the oppressing force versus freeing someone from prison, which could be more of a judicial kind of a thing. So, but here we're going to get into the, like I said, I'm going to complicate this in a bit because what Jesus quotes doesn't fit Isaiah 61 entirely. So (laughs) we'll get into that in just a moment. But Jesus' mission statement here, verses 18 and 19, he has anointed me to preach good news to the poor, freedom for the prisoners, sight for the blind, release the oppressed, proclaim the year of the Lord's favor. Jesus says, I was anointed to do this. And the word anointed, as I think most of you know, is the word for Messiah. So you have a word play here in the Hebrew. Jesus doesn't say, I am the Messiah. He says, God has anointed me to do this task. And he's claiming that the text in Isaiah is the true mission of the Messiah, not the text that imply a future military conqueror. He's almost saying, you know, you, you've read the wrong thing into Messiah. Let's go to Isaiah 61 now and take a look at it. And keeping in mind, we're reading the English Bible, and that's not what Jesus had in front of him. Isaiah 61 and verses 1 and 2. The Spirit of the Lord God is upon me, because the Lord has anointed me. He has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, 
to bind up the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives and release to the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn. So you notice that doesn't sound exactly like Luke 4, does it? It's similar, but there's elements in here that are not in Luke 4 and elements in Luke 4 that are not in here. So what's going on with all of that? But before we get to that, who is speaking here in Isaiah 61? The spirit of the sovereign Lord is on me. doesn't say who me is. It just starts right in. Preach good news to the poor, etc., etc. If you go to the context, the previous verse, that's Isaiah 60, 22. The least of you will become a thousand, the smallest, a mighty nation. I am the Lord. In its time, I will do this swiftly. So the I of 60.22 is Yahweh. The I of 61 is clearly not Yahweh, but somebody else who represents Yahweh. So that's the mystery that came to the early readers of this text. And the conclusion, I think, is that this is a messianic text. The Lord has anointed me, whoever me is. And what Jesus is doing is saying this text, I am the me of this text. I am the anointed one. I am the one who's going to bring good news to the poor, etc. So why are there significant differences between Jesus, Isaiah 61, and yours and mine? One challenge is that the King James Bible, for one, is often based on the Latin or the Greek translations of the Old Testament. So sometimes the New Testament is quoting the Greek Old Testament rather than the Hebrew Old Testament, and they are often quite different. But here's where it goes a little bit deeper. I said I'd complicate things a little, but uh, here's a little textual background. The standard Hebrew Bible is a thousand years old. The standard New Testament Bible goes back 1900 years. So our main text for the Hebrew is actually very late, a thousand years after Jesus. So while the Hebrew Old Testament was there when Jesus was around, we don't have data for that until the Dead Sea Scrolls. The Dead Sea Scrolls were written around the time of Jesus, and their biblical texts reflect a thousand years before the so-called Masoretic text, which is quite a bit afterward. Interesting. We've discovered three different Hebrew texts in the Dead Sea Scrolls. In other words, the biblical writings differ among themselves, the Hebrew itself. In the first century, when Jesus was around, there were three different recensions of the Hebrew. Now, we only have some evidence for two of them from Qumran, because it's largely fragmentary, just a document here and a document there. But that helps to explain why the Isaiah 61 that Jesus is reading is not exactly the same as the Isaiah 61 that we are reading. Because our Isaiah 61 is based on a thousand AD Hebrew text and some earlier texts in Greek and other translations. So you'll often find some people have thought, well, the New Testament has errors in it. No, the New Testament is reflecting a live situation in which certain Bibles might have been a little different in one place or another. And perhaps someone might want to reflect on what implications that has for the way that we read the Bible today, where, where sometimes we obsess so much on every turn of phrase, etc. Is that really the way God intended us to read it? Just give you one piece here, and then I'll turn to Bob. 
in Isaiah 61, as we have it, there's an interesting piece that I don't see directly reflected in uh, Luke 4, and that is, he has sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. And the Hebrew is fascinating here. It says, I have come to heal those whose hearts are crushed. That's a fascinating language. It's poetry, yes. Heal those whose hearts are crushed. So Jesus had a ministry to the depressed, a ministry to those who felt inadequate, etc. It's not just freeing literal prisoners and things like that. So the Isaiah text in the Hebrew background that we are familiar with adds this additional dimension that doesn't seem as clearly there in Luke 4. Bob? To clarify what you're going through, from let's say if we went back to the time of Jesus here in the world, that would be something from the synagogue. So is that text, I guess scrolls, did they not exist through today? In other words, do we not have through the Jewish faith the exact copies of what those were back 2,000 years ago? Did those get somehow lost? Because it seems like those would be similar to the Dead Sea Scrolls. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, the scrolls in the synagogue that Jesus would have read, we do not have those. And with the exception of the Dead Sea Scrolls, don't have anything even close in time. So you have years in which copying and copying and copying happens. And so what we have in the Leningrad Codex, for example, in the Masoretic text, is a text that is a copy of a copy of a copy going back thousands of years. And over that time, not only that, though, the Dead Sea Scrolls seems to suggest that very early, there were already different readings of the Hebrew in maybe different parts of Canaan. Or maybe one comes more from Babylon and another one from Egypt and another one from Israel, because the Jews were scattered abroad. And as they lost touch with each other, the texts may have been altered somewhat over time. So again, the question is, don't want to spend too much time on it. What are there implications for how you would read the Bible knowing that? Michael, you don't have to answer that question. I pose it for everyone. Yeah. I was wondering, how old is the Septuagint that we have available? Well, the Septuagint was included, as was the Hebrew text, in Origen's Hexapla which is where he collected, he's about 150 years after Jesus, maybe 200, and he collected a couple of Hebrew texts, a couple of Greek texts, including the Septuagint, uh, a Latin text, I believe, uh, etc., called the Hexapla, the six versions. Uh, The only problem is we only have copies of that that are copies of copies of copies. So you could say, oh yeah, second century, here's where the text was, but we don't have originals of origin either. So that's where the question would arise as to just what was in the Septuagint. Your New Testament may be the best window we have into what was in the Septuagint in the first century. Michael? And what do we have for either the Gospels, the earliest of the Gospels or the Epistles? The first fairly complete not complete, but fairly complete rendition is, I'm trying to think of the name of it. It's not Bodmer. I think it's a different one, but there's, it's called P45, 46, and 47, the manuscript numbers. And those come from around 200. You have most of the writings of Paul, and I think also most of the gospels as we know them. So by the second century, they were beginning to have collections, and the Codex made that possible. But before that, you have largely fragments. There's a piece of about 
five verses of the Gospel of John that dates as early as 115, but that's an outlier. Sean? One of the potent implications would be that scholarship is vital, is a requirement for our being able to piece together a more total picture of the written record, and that to affix our conclusions on limited data is a little bit tenuous and perhaps ill-advised. I recently read, I think it was in the Recorder uh, Church Publication, a very nice article, which was a lead-in to a recently written book about how during the Elder Pearson years of his general conference leadership as president, 60 to 75 or so, the writer was indicating that we affixed ourselves with positions theologically, sociologically, in ways that did not match the increasing evidence of bad scholarship and the suppression of new data. And so I simply bring that up to illustrate that one of the implications, John, would be that we must include all the sources that we can to position ourselves such that we have a better understanding, a broader understanding, and not a narrower understanding. And I had a follow-up question about how have current Jewish scholars resolved this same tension regarding sources? How have they concluded on the various sources that they wrestle with, the earlier manuscripts, and how have they drawn together some of the conclusions about this particular passage, and who do they expect to fulfill this passage that Jesus chose to include himself as fulfilling? Yeah, thank you. I don't have a complete handle on all the recent Jewish scholarship, but what I do know is that over time, originally the thought was that the Septuagint was a bad translation of the Hebrew in the prophets. It's pretty close to the Hebrew in Moses, but it, it runs pretty far in the prophets. And so the thought was it was a poor translation and we shouldn't trust it too much. But probably the number one Jewish scholar on these issues is Emmanuel Tov, T-O-V. And Tov now argues on the basis of the Dead Sea Scrolls that the Septuagint is an accurate translation of a different Hebrew text. And he argues that it's probably the best and most original Hebrew text. So fortunately, we do have access to that through the Septuagint, and we can compare and draw value judgments in the prophets on you know, which of those readings might be more original, etc. But it does encourage us all to be scholars to the degree that we can, to be open to understanding. A good piece of advice that's often given is take the Bible as it reads. But to go along with that is we don't always read it right. So when you take the Bible as it reads, that's a good, noble thing until you read it wrong. And then it might fix you in the wrong place to take the Bible as it reads. So taking the Bible as it reads means being open to the possibility you've misread it in the past. All right, Larry. Your last point, I think, is based upon my personal observation in history. It wasn't until about the 10th time through that I actually started looking forward to what I was reading and stopped the trying to worry about the inconsistencies, but to look at the bigger picture, which really I think was the point I was going to try and make is that it depends on what you 
are reading the Bible for in the first place. If you're a legal scholar and you're really looking to make sure that people or an accountant, and you're looking to make sure that the debits and credits balance and that nobody has a crime that didn't get stricken off the record, you're going to review all of these inconsistencies differently than if you're an English instructor. An English instructor will look for the story and look for how the grammar is written of the story. Are the versions and are these inconsistencies telling pretty much the same story, which is the story, I think, what we were talking about the last time about trust in God and faith and some of the different things about living right because it is right. So if I'm going to be critical about any of these, what is the purpose for which I'm trying to understand this? And I think that's the key controlling factor to how you will apply and interpret any of this for what you're trying to do today. Now, lest anyone come away thinking, oh boy, everything's up for grabs, you know, maybe we're wasting our time here. I would want to point out one thing in the manuscript tradition of the New Testament, there are many, many variations, but 62% of the verses in the New Testament do not have a single significant variation. I mean, there's a difference between a singular and a plural, or how you express an adjective and things like that. Most of them are trivial. 62% of the New Testament verses do not have a significant variant. So that's a sizable. And I think in terms of affecting doctrine you know, at the core of Christianity, it's far less than 1% of the verses in the New Testament that would have any variant that would cause any trouble to someone. So these variations are important to notice because it helps us to see why is Jesus quoting a text that's not there? <laughs> you know, He's reading Isaiah 61, but he's not. What's the problem here? Knowing that there were those differences at the time, it doesn't change the content. What Jesus says in Luke 4 and what Isaiah says, it's the same basic theme, but there are differences in how it's expressed. Lou? Not being a deep theologian, historian, or anything like that, I always like the question, what does this tell me about God, these verses? What does it say about God and Jesus? And I think what this tells me is that we have a loving, compassionate God. He wants to free. He wants everybody to experience the freedom that comes in a relationship with him. And Jesus, of course, went about healing and setting free through his history here. To me, that's what these verses say about God is his loving compassion and his inclusive love. God meets us where we are at the risk of being misunderstood in doing so. Yeah. Yeah. Bob? Following up briefly on what Sean had gone to a minute ago, Sorry to treat you like an expert witness here, <laughs> but if we were to read Emmanuel Tov, and I made a note, I've got to look at that. Would Emmanuel Tov or other Jewish scholars now have an interpretation, if I followed what Sean was saying, who was being talked about in Isaiah? I'm just curious, because I have a lot of Jewish friends, and when I was in law school, I spent a lot of time with a young Jewish scholar, but I couldn't quite get a fix on where they see this going. Have they given up on the idea of Messiah? Is that something as a historic relic, or is that something just not known to us because we're not part of that culture? 
I'm just curious. Yeah, I don't think there's a unified Jewish position on these issues. There are certainly some scholars fervently looking forward to the Messiah. Some of them would see this as a Messianic text, others might not. But I think there are many Jewish scholars that look forward to the Messiah, but they would see the Messiah as still in the future, whereas Christians see the Messiah as a figure in the past, and that's the core difference there. What the Messiah would be like depends on which texts you take as Messianic, and Isaiah 61 would probably be a bubble text in that discussion. Some would include it and some would not. Jay? Just in general, this point about the importance of scholarship in understanding the text and the Bible and just read the Bible, accept the Bible as it reads and all that sort of thing. First of all, I have to admit that I definitely have very conservative high scripture tendencies. The arguments for the received text and all of those things, I generally embrace those. But I'm also in higher education. So in a somewhat self-protective mode, I sort of like rationales for scholarship and deep investigation. And in that regard, this is kind of an analog to what you were saying about paying careful attention and keeping an open mind to scholarship. Within our community, my community, there's an author that we all love, and she once said famously that our children should be thinkers and not mere reflectors of other men's thoughts. And I have heard many sort of encouraging arguments based on that quote that's sort of denigrating higher education. I got to thinking about that a little bit more closely one time, and it occurred to me that what would be the best way to know whether you're merely reflecting other men's thoughts? Really, the only way to know for sure is to be very familiar with all of the other men's thoughts. So rather than a call to the denigration of education, that statement often used for that purpose, at least that's what I've seen it used for, it's actually a call to greater and deeper scholarship and more familiarity with other men's thoughts so that you know how best to build on those thoughts rather than simply repeating them. Jay, this is a wonderful point, and let me take it a small step further, which I think is compatible with what you said. I see in her a strong concern she expressed several times against having one Bible teacher in a particular college, for example. You're a good Bible teacher, she says, but God is not limited to one person's mind, and students need to be exposed to other people's minds as well. So I think her statement there is don't latch on to a single mentor and follow them everywhere. That investigation, openness, you know, we're all believers, we make commitments. But we're also scholars who recognize the commitments we've made need to be grounded in solid evidence, and we need to be open to new evidence as it comes. Larry? One of the things that I found for me the most useful in the last 20 years, I find that reading paraphrases from humans of different walks of life and then comparing those to committee translations, who are also from different viewpoints, and finding their areas where they're, I'm going to say, 99% identical in their thought, and then where they're dramatically different, and then trying to understand that section that they're so different on, why would they be so different, has allowed me to open up and begin thinking of things that I never occurred to me to think about 20 years ago. So it's just an observation. 
Now, a couple of my favorites in that regard are the Cotton Patch Translation, which is sort of Southern Christianity in the United States. And then there's the Aussie Bible, and one that pops out into my head, the Aussie Bible. And speaking of Mary becoming pregnant by the Holy Spirit, the Aussie Bible says she had a bun in the oven. <laughs> a phrase that would probably go right over our heads right away, but the Aussies, they know exactly what that means. Sean? I wanted to follow up on attempting to cite a source here that I read here recently. It's from a new book by Gilbert Valentine, Ostriches and Canaries, Coping with Change and Adventism 66 through 79, Adventism to Intellectual Struggles. So I just thought that would be well for me to actually give the source on what I had been thinking about in terms of our need to continue to pursue a broad reference point through scholarship in pursuit of truth. I've got a wonderful discussion here, but time is moving on and there's some very significant things in the lesson. So let me move it forward just a little bit here and then we'll open it up again for your input in just a little bit. The question I was going to pose to you, but we're not going to have time now, is what was Luke's purpose in including the story of the synagogue? You don't find that story in Matthew, Mark, or John. In fact, Isaiah 61 isn't quoted anywhere else, at least this passage. There's one possible quotation of a different part of the chapter in another book, but Isaiah 61, 1 and 2 is unique here. Some of the messianic prophecies are over and over again. This one is a one-time thing. So there's something significant here. What is Luke's purpose? And the scholarly answer would be that Luke's is the gospel of liberation. Luke, when you compare Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and you can get text synopses, they call them, that put them side by side so you can compare. And I use that for number four today, which we're about to get into with fascinating results. When you do that, Luke says much more about women, Jesus interacting with women, even as women disciples, Luke chapter eight, outcasts, lepers, etc., publicans, you know, the tax collectors, foreigners, city people. When you compare Luke with Matthew and Mark, he's definitely down this track of liberation, of freeing the outcasts, the oppressed, etc. What some would call social justice. He's the social justice gospel in, in some accounts. So the question that was fascinating to me, why would a physician be so concerned about the poor and the outcast and all of that, that he frames the story around that. And a little piece that's not often widely known is that physicians were not at the top of society. They were not the wealthy ones and the popular ones. The deification of physicians is a fairly recent phenomenon. And it's actually as a Christian basis that physicians should be treated as co-healers with ministers. as 19th century. You know, so the idea of putting physicians at the top of the social scale is relatively recent. Back then, they handled the bodies of the sick and the dead. They were unclean, like shepherds, you know, sitting all day in sheep excrement, etc. So Luke actually knew from personal experience what it meant to be marginalized. And so when he tells Jesus' story, he tells the story, his eyes see a Jesus who prioritizes the sick, the outcast, the foreigner, the marginalized classes in society. So that's why this particular one comes forward. I'd like to go to number four. And if Terry could prepare to read those three versions of the rich young ruler, we'll do that after Julie has her comment. 
I was just noticing reading on in that passage that also mentioned why Luke might be putting this in here. This is, in a sense, I think his introduction to Jesus' ministry and Jesus is making his mission statement, but something also follows. And that is that there's another conversation in that synagogue where Jesus mentions that he's not going to be accepted there. And he gives these examples of times in the Bible where God's prophets reached out, they reached out to people outside of the nation of Israel and had a much better response than they did from the nation of Israel. And this gets that crowd so angry that they try to take Jesus out and throw him down the cliff or whatever they were going to do. And I think that setting up is kind of a precursor to the whole concept that Jesus' ministry that he's mentioning is not just to the Israelites, but it goes much further, but also the conflict that gets involved with that broad range of a ministry is going to affect the rest of his ministry. I think that's kind of the whole setup there. Maybe it's also a reflection of what was happening in Luke's time when he was going around with Paul and running into the same conflict when they were trying to bring the gospel to the Gentiles. Mm -hmm. Thank you. Let's read Matthew 19, 16 to 22, and we're going to just read these through so we're all familiar with the content. And what I want you to be noticing as we read, there's common elements in the rich young ruler story between Matthew, Mark, and Luke. All three have the story, but there's also significant differences, and see if you pick up on some of those. So Matthew 19, 16 to 22. Then someone came to him and said, Teacher, what good deed must I do to have eternal life? And he said to him, Why do you ask me about what is good? There is only one who is good. If you wish to enter into life, keep the commandments. He said to him, Which ones? And Jesus said, You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. Also, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. The young man said to him, I have kept all these. What do I still lack? Jesus said to him, If you wish to be perfect, go, sell your possessions, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When the young man heard this word, he went away grieving, for he had many possessions. Mark 10, 17 to 22. As he was setting out on a journey, a man ran up and knelt before him and asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. You shall not defraud. Honor your father and mother. He said to him, Teacher, I have kept all these since my youth. Jesus, looking at him, loved him and said, You lack one thing. Go, sell what you own, and give the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. When he heard this, he was shocked and went away grieving, for he had many possessions. All right, and then one more, Luke 18, 18 to 23. A certain ruler asked him, Good teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Jesus said to him, Why do you call me good? No one is good but God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not murder. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness. Honor your father and mother. He replied, I have kept all these since my youth. When Jesus heard this, he said to him, There is still one thing lacking. Sell all that you own and distribute the money to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come, follow me. But when he heard this, he became sad, for he was very rich. 
All right. So there's a basic story here that's common in all three. There's mention of the commandments. Someone comes and says, you know, how do I get to eternal life? And Jesus points to the commandments. And then a person says, I've done all of that. And then Jesus says, all right, go and sell all that you have and give to the poor. One thing that's really interesting here is that in Matthew, there's a number of things that are not in the other two. For example, and Matthew says, what good thing must I do? That's Matthew. Jesus says, only one is good. And if you would enter life, love your neighbor as yourself, etc. Only Matthew calls him young. So we say rich, young ruler. Only Matthew calls him young. And only Luke calls him ruler. So the idea that he is rich, all three agree on that. But the rich, young ruler is a conflation of the three versions of the story. It's interesting that in Mark, it tells us that Jesus was traveling and this man approached him while he was traveling. And that's a unique element. And it also says Jesus loved him. Matthew and Luke don't do that. Only Mark says Jesus loved him. And an interesting observation is that Mark expresses Jesus as having emotions. Matthew and Luke do not. Matthew and Luke, Jesus will go through a whole story and any emotional element that you'll find in Mark is missing almost continually in Matthew and Luke. So Jesus' emotions is expressed here. He loved him, etc. So you have some fascinating elements to the story in which it changes small elements. Each of them plays a unique role within that gospel. But now the elephant in the room, of course, is what do we do with Jesus' statement? sell all you have and give to the poor. Is that what we should be doing today? Is that what the story is about? What think ye? Michael? It is easy to say, well, that means everybody should sell everything they have and give it to the poor. And that's not what that commandment is about. In my view, what it's about is his wealth is an impediment to him. And what he needs to do is to get rid of it, to get rid of that impediment, and then come follow Jesus. Then he'll find salvation. And he walks away sadly because he's made a choice. In my view, he's made the wrong one. He chose living a comfortable life rather than having life eternal. You don't have to answer this, Michael, but I'll just throw it out to you and anyone else who wants to tackle it. Is there any evidence in the Gospel of Luke that this is not a universal command of Jesus? Rita? He's talked about keeping the laws or the Ten Commandments, but the one that you can't see, you can't show that you've done, is the tenth, do not covet. And I'm wondering if this is what this is about, that he's actually coveting things in his heart. He doesn't want to give this up. He covets them. And so, therefore, he hasn't kept the law. It's not about a command to all of us to sell everything we have and give it away to poor people. It's about look at your motives. What do you really want? Are you being honest with yourself and with God? I like your perspective. It was Jesus setting a trap by not mentioning that? He gives him a list of commandments, but leaves that one out, at least in Luke. I think you may be onto something there. The easy commandments, no, I haven't murdered anybody. No, I haven't committed adultery. No, I haven't stolen from anybody. Those are relatively easy ones to verify and to perform, at least on the surface. But when you get to the coveting one, that one's, and Jesus has a way of putting his finger on the key element. 
yeah, I like that solution. Livius. Another thing I haven't thought about before is this phrase, come follow me. Do you think that this is kind of a call to be a disciple of Jesus? It says that the others left their nets and followed him or left his father and their boat and followed him. More examples of selling all you have, leaving all you have behind and following Jesus. So I was wondering if this was a call to be a disciple, to follow Jesus, to be as one of his apostles. And Jesus had, I don't know everyone's occupations, but he had fishermen, he had a tax collector. Wouldn't it be cool to have a rich guy who can represent that demographic on your team, per se? That was a highlight for me, that phrase, come and follow me, and what that might mean. I I like your thinking very much. There is a sort of a pattern. You have Matthew with the tax collecting. You have Peter and John and James and Andrew who gave up their fishing business, which is probably a pretty lucrative business. Sea of Galilee was a good source, and you're providing food for a lot of people with relatively a small amount of work. That was not an easy thing to give up. So is Jesus simply saying, where are your priorities? Lou? We don't know the final end of that rich young ruler, do we? It's just this one incident. And who knows, maybe the Holy Spirit continued to work on his heart. And later on, he saw the folly of earthly wealth and all of that. Is that possible? And we don't know, do we? Well, some have suggested maybe he was Judas and later on sort of makes a certain compromise to get back into Jesus' good graces. But no, we just don't know. He just comes out of nowhere. Only one of them says he's young. Only one of them says he's a ruler. There's much that is still mysterious in all of that. Sean? Jesus' continued commentary at least implies that whatever deficiency this ruler has or any of us is very generously made up by the graciousness of God, where he indicates those things that are impossible on man's part are possible with God. So this struggle that this young man was having is not too different than any of the struggles that we may have, whether it's the same issue or others. In the end, Jesus allows for those in that listening group to become aware that his father is a very generous father, and he is going to make up the deficiency that this young man is struggling with. So that does pose maybe a little bit further commentary on whether or not this young ruler in the end will be saved. Mm -hmm. All right, Henry? I think that since Jesus is able to read minds, and he knows what the problem of this man is, and Mark says that he loved him, And given the fact that he is a ruler, and there is such a big gap between Jesus, the humble teacher with no positions, and he still offers the opportunity to him, knowing what his reaction is going to be. It parallels to me like the ark. It parallels to me like the invitation from Sodom to Lot. It parallels to me like the invitation that he keeps doing to all of us. The fact that you are so tied to your treasure doesn't stop me to tell you that I want you to be with me. The offer is mine, and I am giving it to you regardless of what decision you are going to make. To me, that's the beauty of this, because if I were Jesus, I wouldn't give the invitation to somebody who doesn't want it, right? If I know in advance, this is what I always do. No, he's not going to want it. Why waste time on it? But it was so evident that there was, as Mark said, he loved him. 
the way that he was. So stuck in the opposite direction and didn't deny his love to him. The author of the lesson suggests that this was a decisive moment of salvation, that the issue that this young man faced was such that if he did not follow through on what Jesus was saying, that his hope of salvation was fading away. I don't know that that can be demonstrated from the text, but that's one possibility, at least, for why Jesus makes such a radical request. But I did raise the question earlier, does Luke offer any evidence that you don't read the text in the sense that this is what everybody's supposed to do? All three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, and Luke, all have this story, but only Luke follows it with another story of another rich man who is interested in Jesus, but is not quite sure which way to go. And that's in Luke 19 and verses 1 to 10. And as Terry reads that, I want you to think, what are the similarities and differences between these two stories? And perhaps only Luke faced the question, are we all supposed to sell everything we have and give it to the poor? Perhaps he even faced that question because he's the one that brings in the story that helps to clarify that. So Luke 19, 1 to 10. He entered Jericho and was passing through it. A man was there named Zacchaeus. He was a chief tax collector and was rich. He was trying to see who Jesus was, but on account of the crowd, he could not because he was short in stature. So he ran ahead and climbed a sycamore tree to see him because he was going to pass that way. When Jesus came to the place, he looked up and said to him, Zacchaeus, hurry and come down for I must stay at your house today. So he hurried down and was happy to welcome him. All who saw it began to grumble and said, He has gone to be the guest of one who is a sinner. Zacchaeus stood there and said to the Lord, Look, half of my possessions, Lord, I will give to the poor. And if I have defrauded anyone of anything, I will pay back four times as much. Then Jesus said to him, Today salvation has come to this house, because he too is a son of Abraham. For the Son of Man came to seek out and to save the lost. So if the rich young ruler had said, I'll give half, would that have made a difference? Because Zacchaeus offers half, and Jesus says, great. (laughs) What do these texts have in common? Both men are rich. Both wanted to see Jesus. Both wanted eternal life. But what are the differences in the two stories? All right, Terry? I see that Zacchaeus offered to give possessions on his own, on his own free will. He offered it. He wasn't asked or directed to give away things. Excellent observation. Yes. Rita? Yes, I was going to say a similar thing. The difference is the understanding, the insight that the person has who's met Jesus. The young man didn't have the insight to realize where he was lacking. But Zacchaeus did Mm. and wanted to make restitution for it. Very good. Yes. Good observation. Henry? There is another big difference between these two characters. One is an outcast. One feels the need. The other one thinks he's got there. He has everything. He doesn't lack anything. Yeah. Excellent observation. And notice that the rich young ruler is sandwiched between the Pharisee and the publican and the story of Zacchaeus. So this idea of this outcast the rich outcast who finds salvation is doubled up by Luke. 
and surrounds the rich young ruler story. The rich young ruler is the contrast to the two publicans who are also rich, who are in much worse shape than he is in terms of society because they're outcasts. But Luke shows that Jesus is on the side of the outcasts. And I suppose the question is, how much do you have to give away for salvation to come to your house? And that's one other difference, by the way. Jesus comes to Zacchaeus' house and doesn't offer that to the rich young ruler. So something different between the two. The question, how much do you have to give? Rich young ruler says 100%. Zacchaeus goes 50%. Jesus says, great. And I would suggest the answer is as much as necessary. Zacchaeus, as has been said, recognized what his spiritual flaw was, and he jumped into the breach to deal with it. A rich young ruler was overwhelmed by the realization that his spiritual defect was of such a nature that he would have to make the ultimate sacrifice in order to attain his goal as much as necessary. When God calls, it is wise to respond because he has our best good at heart. Henry? Probably the indication Jesus does not tell the John Rich ruler, give it all right now. He just says, give all that you have. He could have started little by little, right? And ended up giving it all at the end. So that's another assumption that we probably make sometimes that he was asking them and demanding him to give it all at that time. And Zacchaeus offered half of what he had, and then he tripled here and did more there. And at the end, following him, he left everything, right? So ended up giving everything that he had. So probably that's another thing that we need to look at, that when God is asking for everything, he is not expecting you to run the marathon today, but at least to start walking the first block. To commit everything and then let the chips fall from there. Yeah, I like that. Larry? I think it's where you get to the point where you realize that you can't do it on your own. And it's at that point you realize that you need the power that is being brought to you by Christ. Alan? Perhaps how much is the wrong question? It wasn't the rich man's riches that were the issue. It was his love of the riches over his love of God. Whereas with Zacchaeus, it wasn't that he gave half that cleared things up. It was his love of Jesus over his love of everything else. So that's why I would question, you're not looking for an amount. It's a faith thing, right? You can't buy your way into heaven. You have to have right. you know, faith. Good point. All right, we're coming to the end of our time. And at the conclusion, I had number seven in mind, where it says, when Deuteronomy 15, 11 says, the poor will never cease from the land. Why should helping the poor be such an important emphasis among the followers of God? And as a concluding thought, I would just indicate, it's true, the poor will always be there. Our efforts to help the poor will in the end not make a huge difference. It'll be like putting your hand in a bucket of water and you pull it out and your hand is wet. Otherwise, there's not a big difference that you can see. But it's part of discipleship. It's part of stewardship. It's part of being a follower of Jesus Christ. And when you help the least of these, it shows that you care about what God cares about. God cares about the poor. God cares about the outcasts. And when you reach out to them, you're caring about what God cares about. And more than that, it's a way of showing the world what God is truly like. Let's pray. We thank you, Lord, for the time we've spent together, for the biblical texts that we've wrestled with. And Lord, I pray that 
Whenever we get a little bit uncomfortable with the biblical text, I pray that you would give us a desire and the wisdom and the patience to wait upon you, that things will be resolved if we are open at the time when we are ready. And I pray that as we consider the opportunities to serve in our communities, that you would touch our hearts with when to move, how to move, how much to move, etc. We trust in you, Lord, and we know that you have our best interests in heart. So may we live the way you live and show the world what you are like by your grace. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.